Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for loading us up today and making us a part of your week. We like that you do that. That's great. This is episode number 128 of The Next Track. You know, we have a contact form at thenexttrack.com. People can contact us. Well, well, a listener sent us a link to an article that he thought we would find interesting, and indeed we did. We're going to use it as the basis of a of uh, some riffing here. It is called Seven Songs That Prove Streaming Has Changed Song Structures. It is written by a gentleman by the name of Martin Connor, and it is available at Output.com, which is a music gear site, but they also do, obviously, articles about music. This um, This article struck me as being interesting because I'm always wanting to know why is the music that's coming out now different from the way it was six months ago, five years, 20 years ago. And that's something that we touch on a lot on the show. This is interesting because it does talk about streaming, putting constraints on the way songs are produced. And that's something I'm interested in. And I think everybody should be interested in how does a a platform uh, affect the way the music that is on it is made. And I I thought it was a, a very good subject for us to talk about. Now he has Uh, six or seven points here that he likes to make. He uses hip-hop songs that are well-known as examples. Since we are not uh, well-versed in hip-hop, we're not going to talk about the music so much, but mostly about the points he makes. So the first point he makes is that streaming's data collection makes songs simpler. And I've been seeing articles talking about how song intros have been getting shorter and have been disappearing for some time. And, And I think The reason is that if you're listening to a playlist on a streaming service and you don't like the first 15 seconds of a song, you're likely to press the next button. I know that when I'm driving in my car and I listen to my Apple Music radio station, I've got the little controls on the steering wheel. And if I hear something, it's not that I don't like it because this is music I like. It's just that it's a song that isn't appropriate for driving. Or for whatever reason, you could be just tired of it. Yeah, I can name that tune in six notes and often, you know, hop to the next track. I think with streaming for music that's unfamiliar, people are, they might be more likely to not want something that doesn't fit. You know, think of a song at the extreme is Stairway to Heaven that starts out with a slow acoustic guitar before it gets to the sort of pseudo heavy metal at the end. Think of all the songs in particular from the 70s that start out with slow, mellow introductions, maybe 45 seconds before there's vocals. So it's true that eliminating that introduction means that people will get to the meat of the song more quickly. And if the data collection does tell artists that a lot of people have skipped after 20 seconds, well, that can be motivation for them to keep removing that extra stuff. It's certainly a limitation. Um, what, you know, th- this makes me think that they're overly concerned. They're hyper-concerned about churn. That is, if they're so, con- they're so concerned that a listener will tune out, that they have to make sure that the entire piece is recognizable right away. And, you know, even radio stations are concerned about that kind of churn. Uh, They try to play music that most of their audience will like, but inevitably there's going to be a song or two that you don't like and you may tune out from the radio station when you hear it. But to be so concerned that the song will not be recognized quick enough for you to get recognition for having the play... Uh, on a streaming service, it it just it certainly puts a great limitation on the creativity uh, that you can have with a song. If the song is is going to be just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and no, I don't know, improvisation or improvisational sorts of things like solos and 
maybe some some vocal acrobatics or whatever or or rapping acrobatics it seems to me that you're you're constraining yourself pretty strictly again that's not entirely new because punk bands were doing that in the 70s but we will get to that later but it is interesting that artists are looking to remove what's unnecessary in a track now i wonder if when you have a song that fades out at the end say over 20 seconds if people skip to the next track, if that dings them in terms of how much money they make for a play. I know that with iTunes, if you skip to the next track, when there's more than 10 seconds left, it doesn't count as a play in your library. And I wonder if there's something like that in streaming services as well, that people have to get to at least the last X seconds of a song to get full payment. Yeah, that would be good to know because it would certainly affect the way you thought about... Well, uh, let me put it to this way. If, if they thought enough to cut the beginning... How much of the after the beginning are they thinking they need to cut to get money? Yeah, and is it are there different levels of payment? Thirty seconds, you get this; a minute, you get that, etc. Yeah. I would think it's probably an all or nothing at a certain point, maybe half the song or something. But we don't know. We'll try and find that out for next week. If any listeners know anything about that, if you are musicians and you're involved in streaming, drop us a line. The second point is streaming sites. Social media makes songs confessional, and you know. Again, the, the person who wrote this is writing about hip-hop, and this is certainly true in hip-hop, but I remember Carly Simon's You're So Vain. I remember Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. You know, confessional is not new. The difference here is that the confessional can be released so much more quickly. I, I, I think the sort of confessional he's talking about here, and he talks specifically about Kanye West's uh, recent Ye album. There's a song in it called I Thought About Killing You. And Apparently, it's just some kind of stream of consciousness. It's not even really good rap. It's just this stream of consciousness stuff. It sounds like perhaps he cranked this thing out in about a half an hour because, I mean, it's not difficult to create loops and, you know, have that repetition. There's another set of repetition, by the way, short song things. As soon as you hear that little four-bar repeat loop, uh, this familiarity. So um, I, I don't think... I don't think anybody has ever created music this quickly before, and if it's confessional, um, it just gives them a topic to that they can latch onto right there and, and talk about it because it's personal. But I'd, I think that's just sloppy songwriting, actually, to be honest with you. I, I agree, and there's not much longevity in it. You know, again, we don't listen to hip-hop, so we're missing a whole element of musical culture. But you hear about all these feud rap songs and people attacking each other, you're not going to want to listen to that in 10 years when people have realized that the feud was just a PR stunt. This sort of confessional thing has a very short shelf life. And while it may feed an audience that wants new content, it is not going to keep your career going with backlist sales. Only, I think, with uh, with the most diehard fans who, you know, find something even, interesting. Yeah, Even, even. So, number three, small streaming profits make songs shorter. Um, we've talked about this many times about how artists and labels get paid the same amount of money regardless of the length of a song. And particularly in terms of classical music, the problem is that a 20-minute movement of a Mahler symphony gets paid the same amount of money as a two-minute song. And if you're making a lot of music and you want to get more money knowing that the majority of your money is coming from streaming, well, why not make two- or three-minute songs instead of four- or five-minute songs you can put, say, 16 or 18 songs on an album instead of 10 or 12. Not that people really listen to albums that much, but you'll also find that your fans who are putting this on repeat 
are going to make you earn twice as much money because you'll be getting twice as many plays. The history of the length of the pop song is really kind of interesting. If you go back to the early 60s and transistor radios, you heard a lot of two-and-a-half, three-minute songs, I suspect because the optimum amount of music you could get on a single was about two-and-a-half, three minutes, so that's what you heard on the radio. Eventually, FM comes along, free-form, progressive, non-commercial. They're playing longer songs. Radio formats say, hey, this stuff is popular. How can we play these longer songs? And so they started adding longer songs. But even that was bumpy because if you remember, like, Light My Fire by The Doors, the album version is seven minutes long, but to get it on the radio to be heard, they cut it down to about three minutes. They cut out the guitar solo and they cut out a lot of stuff. A lot of records came out that way. Uh, there would be a long version on the album and then they'd cut it down for radio. And eventually... Radio didn't even care about that. They would play the full-length songs. But that's only because album-oriented rock made it okay to create four, five, six-minute length songs. Radio stations could accommodate that length in their formats. So it's very interesting that now pop music has gone back to the two-and-a-half, three-minute song. Well, look at the Ramones' first album in 1976. The longest song is 2 minutes 39. There are seven songs that are less than two minutes long. And this was a very common thing in punk, to play short songs, play them very fast. They're not relying on lyrics as much. As you said, three, four minutes for a song is you're telling a story with a song. The lyrics have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You need that time to tell most stories. Although the Beatles did a lot of songs that were two, two and a half minutes long that were quite nice, which often made me wonder, imagine if the Beatles were writing four-minute songs, how much better the music would have been in the in the early days of the Beatles. Yeah, I think they were always in a singles mode. They were all they were just so used to doing that. It took them a long time to break that habit. Um, they did write longer songs later, but um, I think for the for the most part, they they were still thinking short. Yeah, but w with a few exceptions, they never really went over four minutes very much, did they? No, actually, no. So looking at the early Beatles records, let's take a hard day's night. Nothing is longer than three minutes. There's one song that's one minute fifty. But as you get further up, even Sgt. Pepper, there are only, let's see, two songs that are longer than four minutes. Within, Without You, 505, A Day in the Life, 537. Even the White Album, most of the songs are relatively short. There's a few that are longer than four minutes, notably Revolution 9, but they're still, the majority of the songs are around three minutes, and the, many of the songs are less than two minutes. One could argue that the Beatles' White Album is kind of like the Clash of Sandinista. It has a lot of stuff that was gathered together and shouldn't have been there. But even if you look at, I don't know, Abbey Road, which is probably the classic late album, I Want You, She's So Heavy is 747, but that's kind of two songs. There's only one song that's over four minutes, and that's come together. So the, the short song is not new, but I think people are approaching music more cynically now, making short songs to make money. I think that's right, and I think... it. Certainly in the heyday of the CD, it wouldn't have been inappropriate for an artist to release a bunch of long songs and say, okay, well, this is going to be our single, and that's going to be another single. And then you can, you know, have more artistic and more creative license on the other tracks. But to systematically create two, two-and-a-half-minute songs just so you can get the airplay and the play recognition, I think, I think that's unfortunate. So number four is streaming's customizability makes songs built to order. I'm not really sure what this means because the, the example here again is Kanye West, his Life of Pablo, which was full of blank silence, alternate versions, instrumentals without vocals, and acapellas without instruments. 
this isn't new. Experimental music has been doing this for decades, and John Cage did things like that. And and the Belgian composer Wim Mertens did a number of records like that where the four individual tracks, the four instruments were on separate tracks, and basically it was up to listeners to copy them to their computers and mix them together, but they didn't sync at the t- same time. So th- there were some fans who like made mixes of this to get them synced correctly. I mean, you'd be able to do it, Doug, because you're an audio editor, but for most of us, you know, getting the four tracks lined up was complicated. So this isn't new. I think it's new in a particular market of pop music, but it's also sort of self-absorbed of the idea of just, I'm just going to dump everything. And, you know, it makes Sandinista look like a masterpiece. I I think it's interesting in that you, it's easier to take this music, for instance, he's talking about um, uh, Kanye West's Life of Pablo, which has a lot of pieces in it. And if you download them and mix them, you can, I don't know, be your own Kanye. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure. But it reminded me that um, Trent Reznor, would frequently release his Logic Pro projects to to fans so that they could remix them, which is a little more, uh, I think, a little more the way it should have been. I, this this just taking stuff off of CD and mixing it. No one's going to do that. But when you actually get the, the 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 Logic project and see, oh, this is what Trent Reznor wrote, um, it becomes a little more. It, I I feel closer to Trent Reznor because look, he put those MIDI notes there. He's the guy that did that. But the recording of it doesn't make a lot of sense. But that's and and the number of people who are going to do this is so limited. I, I don't think this really. I, I don't see this as a change in song structure. I see this as, as a gimmick. Content digitization makes songs more diverse, and there we have to really disagree. He's talking about albums that contain as many genres as possible: soul, R and B, rap, hip hop, country, Motown, new wave, rock, emo, or punk. I would argue that soul, R and B, rap, and hip hop are part of an overarching genre. Country is a bit different. Motown is just older versions of R&B. New wave rock, emo, and punk, they're part of an overarching genre. So it's not like you're going to find a record that combines punk and R&B and Motown and country. But you do find more combinations of a couple of genres. But this isn't that different from you know bands that did hard rock and soft rock or jazzy rock and mellow singer songwriter stuff and it, this isn't really new and, and again with with all due respect to martin connor the author we're not hip-hop fans but it's very possible that hip-hop fans aren't looking at the history of popular music in the same way that we are they're younger it, it's a younger genre etc there's nothing here that's really new it wouldn't be unusual for an artist a really big artist back in the 70s or the 80s even the 90s to release an album of tracks where a single was created specifically for a kind of radio format. The The album that comes to mind for me is is Thriller by Michael Jackson. There were, I mean, for goodness sake, on Beat It, you've got Eddie Van Halen playing guitar. Well, you're going to get some rock radio airplay from that. He's got light rock songs. He's got R&B songs. So, I mean, he has great crossover on the album already. It's it's He's built it in. So naturally, it's going to get played on those formats. Those formats will want to play those records. Um, and a lot of artists did that. It wasn't unusual to have a country song. The Rolling Stones used to release country songs. I mean, um, sure. it's not... Country, blues, sure. rock. They even had their own sort of rap song with Miss You in 79, 80, 81. Yeah, yeah early 80s. That, that was popular for a few yeah. minutes. Um, so it's not unusual for, for an artist to want to diversify on their album in order to get 
airplay, which is essentially what he's saying here. Is that? But I, th I think that it might be unusual for rap and hip-hop to diversify as much of that. And that's where rap and hip-hop, it may be starting to merge with other genres. You know, we saw that Aerosmith song that Rick Rubin had run DMC record, and, and initially they were like, why are we going to do this? And it turned out to be the crossover track that got people who weren't into rap and, and hip-hop into the music. They used a lot of rock on that on that Run DMC album, by the way. My Sharona is sampled. There's some Led Zeppelin that's sampled. There's all kinds of stuff in there. So their right. intention was to have some kind of crossover. As it turned out, Run DMC was very popular with suburban white guys. Yeah. I mean, And it, it gave Aerosmith a second chance as well because they were pretty Absolutely. moribund at the time, weren't they? Oh, moribund is the right word. They were ready to be buried at that time. Um <laughs> Made an incredible second career happen for yeah. them. But, but in any case, this sort of cross-pollination isn't new, but I think it's new in, in this type of ultra-popular pop. One of the things I really like about hip-hop, and actually anything that uses sampling, is that they can borrow from anything and turn it into you know whatever they want. And it's But that sampling doesn't have to be... Sampling a, a Johnny Cash song doesn't mean that it has to sound like a Johnny Cash song. That's the whole point of sampling. It can it can be a, a short bit that's sampled and repeated over over and over, so right. you don't hear it. Right, and it also creates a different kind of right. sound. It creates a different sort of thing. Right, it's, it's no longer Johnny Cash. It's been reconstituted. Right. Uh, I, I think that stuff is interesting. But. Okay, so free content makes songs more collaborative, and we're going to have to disagree a little bit because I don't think that it's free content. You know, we were searching our archive because we talked with someone some months ago who was telling us how songs are written these days, how you get a producer to make the beat and you get a, someone to come in and do the hooks and someone else who does the guitar riffs and someone else who does the, the backing vocals. And so the example in this article is 17 songwriting credits for a particular song. That's just the way music is made now. It's not because of free content. It's because of the way that songs are produced according to a certain type of algorithm. Something that we didn't have when, you know, even Rolling Stones sitting down writing songs, they would come up with chord change, a guitar riff or something, or someone would come up with lyrics and then they'd mix it together. And maybe, maybe Charlie Watts would have some tiny input into a song, but you never, you didn't have that same approach. Whereas today, songwriting is a factory thing. People get together for a week, they're going to write a bunch of songs, they got to turn out 10 songs in a week, and and that's not how it happened, you know, in previous decades. The only thing I can compare it to is when an album would, when a record company would say, uh, we're going to bring in this producer to produce a couple of tracks for your right, album. to make a specific sound. Right. And and that's been going on for quite a while. That I, I remember like people like Britney Spears and, and a lot of pop artists you know, their current producer or whatever wasn't exactly right. Let's bring in this guy who is really hot right now and uh, and do a couple of songs. But I guess that's kind of expanded. They kind of took advantage of that. And now that you can, you know, you can send your music production over the Internet to a guy on the other side of the world and he can tweak it and send it back. And so it it makes sense that this happens. But 17 writing credits. Why, why bother? How much money are they going to make? You know, well, you it's not money, that. it's it's recognition, I think. Yeah. And well, it's true. not clear here. They're, they're listed as composer, but it doesn't say who wrote the lyrics and how many people were involved in the lyrics. And it could be that a bunch of people were sitting around drinking and the singer's saying, I got this song. And some guy says, you know, 
here's a good line and say, oh, I like that. I'm going to put that in the song and they need to get a credit. You know, and, and another thought that occurs to me is that musicians these days are so litigious. It seems to me that if someone gives you an inkling of an idea, you better give them a credit. Otherwise, they may come after you for royalties. So there's that to consider as well. So the last point in this article is something that I think we vehemently disagree with. Videos increasing dominance makes songs into soundtracks. And it focuses on Childish Gambino's new song, This Is America. So the, the writer says, this, this finishes a movement that the Buggles began in 1979 with Video Killed the Radio Star and that Michael Jackson continued in 1982 with Thriller. The first made a video that supported a song and the second made a song and its video true equals. We grew up with MTV. There were two types of, well, let's say there were three types of videos. One was the band playing live, period. The second was the band playing while something else was going on. And you'd have like two people staring at each other across the room and then you'd cut to the band playing and then back to the two and things like that. And the third is where the video has nothing to do with the band. The band's not in the video. It's meant as a short film that the music illustrates. This is not something that is innovative. It's been going on for quite some time. Uh, I'm going to link to one example, which is probably not the most enjoyable music video you'll ever see, but in 2009, Bob Dylan released a video for Beyond Here Lies Nothing, a song from his album Together Through Life, and it's it's a sort of a violent thing um, of a, a couple having a fight and then getting back together again. The song goes on in the background. You see this three-and-a-half-minute film, and that's it. There's nothing Bob Dylan in the song. It is a tiny film. There are dozens of these. There have been hundreds of these. You know, and I, I also think that there's a misconception about music videos. Music bi videos are so ubiquitous now, but there's an important thing to remember. MTV popularized the music video, but before August 1981, when MTV signed on, there were no music videos. We didn't call them music videos. They were generally called promotional films, promo videos, and not every artist made them. In fact, I would think it was only the most popular artists on a, on a record label's roster that would get video promotions made. The Rolling Stones made them. The Beatles made them. And the other thing is, once they aired, you never saw them again. It's not like you could go to the record store and, and buy the latest, you know, promotional videos. So we didn't really have the concept of music videos. And when these videos were made, they looked a lot like... Uh, a Hard Day's Night, or The Monkey's Head, uh, the movie head. Um, it was just mostly just, you know, mugging for the camera and, and doing crazy things because they didn't know how to make music videos. They didn't know how to present themselves. That yeah. all came later. Yeah, no, that's not new, but it's true that the, the dominance of video is very important. But I kind of wonder, you know, YouTube is the most popular streaming service but how many people actually sit and watch the videos? I don't think they really do. I think they put the video on on their phone to listen to it. I, I don't think people are staring at the videos. They may watch them once, twice, ten times, whatever, but they may listen to the song a hundred times. So I think the the whole YouTube thing is a sort of a red herring because it's really just a conduit for the audio. And you know, I think a lot of the streaming on YouTube is those things where people upload albums and, and the entire video is just a still of the album artwork while the album plays right, in the background. Yeah. Or or other cool pictures that they found and the Ken Burns effect. Yes, maybe photos of the band or something like that. 
But yeah, I don't think people sit and stare at their phones when they're watching a video like this. No, I, I have to admit that I have broken the player out of the window and had it on while I was doing something else. But I rarely watch YouTube that way. I usually, yeah. I usually find something. I don't listen to music on YouTube, quite frankly, unless it's someone says, go listen to the song and you can only hear it on YouTube. But uh, otherwise, I just watch films and short movies and things like that on YouTube, TV shows. Yeah, like but again, we're not in the genre that this article's talking about, hip-hop, rap, and, and this sort of R&B pop and, and all that. But I still don't think that people are watching these videos as much as that. I think this whole thing is interesting because it does show that how the technology is changing the content, but technology has always changed content. You know, when the paperback book came around, there was a certain type of fiction that was written to fit in it. When the Penny Dreadful came around in the 19th century, there was a certain type of fiction that was written for it. TV created a new type of video content. Instead of it being a feature film, it was a one-hour show, which has since morphed to a 42-minute show with 18 minutes of commercials, which has since morphed to TV series where episodes are an hour and a half long, like the new series by Matthew Weiner, who created Mad Men, which is on Amazon, called The Romanoffs. There's two episodes so far, and each is just under an hour and a half. I don't recommend it, by the way. <laughs> oh, good. Now I don't have to make that decision. Um, yeah, technology has definitely put constraints on things or freed people up. For instance, the CD could contain more music than an LP. Uh, the, the LP can, can contain more music than a 10-inch. The 10-inch could have more music than a, a single platter, uh, you know, 78. So it, it's always provided an opportunity for change one way or the other, either more restrictive or more liberating, depending on how you look at it. But it, I, I do think it's interesting that music is being created not because it's a creative expression, but because it's a money-making venture. And that's always been what pop music is. It's, we always used to think of it as product in the radio station. It wasn't like, oh boy, the new Duran Duran album is out. It's like, mmm, fresh product. How are we going to use this to our benefit to get more listeners to sell advertising? That kind of thing. So it's very interesting to me that, you know, this is that, that producers are looking at the changes that are made in streaming and reacting to it in not always a great way. Uh, two minute songs. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Two-minute songs. I'm reminded of an example we've mentioned several times here. In the 1970s, a guy named Tom Schultz created a band called Boston, and he basically crafted the songs so that they would fit in the radio format. It was a, a huge record at the time. It was really good. I, I liked it. I listened to it a lot. You'll, you'll still hear it. I mean, it's a core classic rock album well that's because the influence of classic rock we need to do a show about classic rock and how it has created a sort of monolithic 70s 80s rock culture but his goal was to create this record for radio airplay and and he was basically doing what these hip-hop producers are doing now is crafting everything he, he listened to a whole lot of records and he crafted his songs so that they would get airplay and brilliant you know uh, it was very well done it didn't sound artificial, but over time, as more bands came along and tried that same sound, it was obvious that it was a template. I don't think there's any question that the the technology is going to affect the way the music is created and produced, whether that means having a really short song to fit on a 45 so it can be played on a jukebox, whether that means creating uh, different songs for different formats for different radio airplay, or whether that means creating two-minute songs to get quick recognition so you can, you know, rack up the, the, the streaming dollars. 
one way or another, producers, especially of pop music, are going to try to take advantage of the, of the parameters that they've been given. And while this article is not perfect, and we do disagree with some of it, I, I think it's pretty astute. I think it's always important to, uh, to, to take a check on why are things different than they were just a few weeks ago. And I, I think this was a good start. So I enjoyed this conversation. It is now the point in the program where we like to present our next tracks, the music that we are going to be listening to soon. Kirk, what have you got? So we mentioned YouTube earlier and listening to music on YouTube, and, and Doug said he watches programs and documentaries. And I don't really listen to music on YouTube, but I do occasionally look at music videos for specific reasons. Regular listeners will remember that I've been learning to play the shakuhachi for about six months. It's a Japanese flute. And one of the performers who really interested me early on was Okuda Atsuya, who to me kind of sounds like the Miles Davis of the shakuhachi. My teacher is one of his students, and when I told her that, she laughed because Okuda had been a jazz trumpetist for many years before he started playing the shakuhachi. And so I got to wondering, okay, if he's the Miles Davis, who's the John Coltrane? And I found this guy who as some of these people do, they have multiple names. And for a while, he went under the name Chikuza. And I'm going to link to a YouTube video of him performing Hante no Shirabe, which is one of the basic classic pieces of shakuhachi music. He is also a student of Okuda Atsuya, like my teacher. So there's an interesting lineage thing here. This guy is a badass shakuhachi player. In this video, he's playing one of the longest ones you can actually play. I mean, you can see how far he's stretching to get to the bottom holes. And when you watch his technique, even if you don't appreciate the music, you can see that he is doing kind of like Coltrane or almost Ornette Coleman. Check it out. It's only four and a half minutes. I'm not going to bore you with too much shakuhachi music because probably 99% of listeners don't care about this. But I think this is a very interesting example of someone taking a traditional instrument and performing it in a bit of an iconoclastic manner. Doug, have you got something iconoclastic this week? Uh, only by stretching the definition of iconoclast to bizarre limits. Um, I, I'm also inspired this week by our discussion of music videos. Uh, I remember when record companies would send radio stations uh, promotional films for their for their music. And when I was in college, I was not only at the radio station, I was also working down the hall at the video studio. It was a student-run video uh, studio where we helped journalism students and anybody really who wanted to do video. So I was back and forth between the two facilities. And when the radio station was sent promotional movies, promotional films on videotape, we didn't call them music videos. We didn't have any place to watch them except at the video studio. So let's go watch these. And one of my favorites was one put out for the band Madness in their album, Absolutely. I really liked Madness. I liked the first album with One Step Beyond on it and, and a lot of other great ska revival songs. The second album came out. It was a bit more poppy, so I didn't pay that much attention to it. But we had this video of five or six songs from the album done promotionally, and they're hilarious. And we had it on all the time, so I was just used to hearing it. I finally had to buy the record. Madness was not really as popular in the United States as, as in the U.K., Obviously, they're very British, depending on your definition of British. And uh, the only hit that I think they had in the United States was Our House, which, if I never heard again, would be too soon. But I really like this second album, Absolutely by Madness. Each song is like a little well-crafted pop song, and the videos went along 
with the songs very well. My favorite song from the album was a hit in the UK. It's called Baggy Trousers. And the video to that is just crazy. They have uh, the sax player uh, on a crane just kind of flying around a schoolyard and while other events are going on and other craziness. And, of course, the song itself is about ne'er-do-wells in elementary school, and it's it's just a, a clever little pop song. Like the whole album, it's, it's really quite good. I never cared much for much of Madness after this album, but that's how music videos got me to like a band. And this band, Madness, absolutely is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.